Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. The cost of preparedness, measured now in gold, later in blood. I'm Ian Woodworth and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today we have a special guest, Lewis from Dead Channel Studios, to talk about his newest project, Caravans, a 5e camp running module. Lewis, welcome to Undercommon Taste. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, thank you for coming. So let's go ahead and start off with the basics. Who are you? What do you do? How'd you get into gaming? Those sorts of things. Yeah, so I've um, been working with Dead Channel Studios for the last year. Before then, I worked for Dragon Turtle Games on Carbon 2185, which was a really huge learning experience. And it kind of revived my love for tabletops and inspired me a lot in terms of actually going into a direction of doing tabletop as a game design kind of career choice as opposed to doing like 3D games and all that kind of stuff, which I originally studied for at university. And since then, yeah, pretty much I've just been working on that, getting back into playing tabletops. I actually started when I was doing sort of a community gig at an arcade and I met a couple of friends. We did a sort of game night, we played some cards and then they introduced me to fourth edition D&D. And from there, I just kind of got engulfed by the world of everything D&D and everything tabletop. Wow, I'm honestly suppressed. It was fourth edition that brought you into the fold. Uh, do you know what? Very, very surprised. Don't worry. It was a learning curve <laughs> on its own. But it was more fun just to sit there and have a laugh. Like I remember a campaign that we had where we were in a city and my character was just as geeky as you can get. It was like a Nero. It was around about the time DMC4 had come out, Devil May Cry. And it was very much a Nero demon slaying Witcher type deal before witches were a thing. Oh, well, like the popularity of The Witcher 3. I've yeah. never heard of the series before then. It was more like DMC and it was just really funny. We we're in the city where the same day keeps repeating. And okay. I remember that our dwarf had this power that was phallic to a degree where the more, you know excited he was the more power he got and a dragon appeared and he out of nowhere just went i'm gonna seduce the dragon rolled a nat 20 (laughs) and because it was a nat 20 every time we repeated the day the dragon would just have this sudden impulse and every day he would die from like the futurama meme like the snoo snoo (laughs) (laughs) it was just that those kind of things and those kind of moments and that group dynamic that really brought me into it just the comedy because I was doing improv comedy, I think, not long after that. Or maybe, yeah, just about before then. And um, I just loved it. I just loved the kind of theatrical aspect of it and the sort of bouncing off each other. And I mean, don't get wrong, I was terrible in combat. But now I'm a lot better at that because I have to design those kind of things. But that's after years of really studying. Especially 5th edition. 5th edition is so much better. I love it. Love it so much more. And that's what's great. I mean, I'll snark the fourth edition aside because I'll snark against fourth edition all day long. But really, <laughs> being able to sit at your table with some friends, make new friends, having some fun, just laughing about something silly or some weird inside joke you create. I mean, really, that's what the tabletop experience is about. That's yeah. gaming at its core. So, yeah, I absolutely love it. Yeah, no, definitely. I completely agree. Like I, it was good though because I had both sides of the coin in like my first major experience because I got to see the really good side of it. But then unfortunately, I also then got to see kind of the rule master. Ah, oh, my character's this amazing thing. Our group dynamic sort of fell apart because of those issues and a lack of willing to like kind of be like, look, no, and sort of separating that out, and that caused the whole sort of dynamic to fall apart, which was a shame. And it was a while before I got back into D&D, and surprisingly how I got the job I did at Dragon Talk Games, which was at a funeral. Well, the wake itself, like, you know, everyone's chatting and we're talking, and I ended up speaking to someone in particular, and it turns out her husband was looking for people for a game. So after a couple of weeks, I ended up joining the game, not having played for quite some time. 
and turns out he was looking to hire someone. So did a job application and then boom, next thing I know, I'm designing, creating and doing some customer service for a tabletop company. And that kind of led to me doing more things, writing, editing, you know, getting my work criticized and corrected and just scrapped to learn what I needed to be doing and how I needed to be writing to be able to create the stuff that I do now. That's awesome. I mean, having that whole experience, one that balance is something that E and I have talked about in many different forms, which is a huge part of any game. And then two, I mean, the experience that you just have to have of being able to do this professionally, that's one of the hardest things to do is to tell a person, you know what, you've got a good idea, but the rest of this sucks, you know, and even being able to hear that constructively and being able to fix and work on what you that is such a huge component to anything of quality. And that is a hard lesson to learn. Definitely. Like it was hard to receive it. Like it wasn't just, you know, oh, your work could be better. It was like, this is terrible. Like it was straight up. My mentor, I owe my credit, so much credit to my mentor and my boss and a friend because without his feedback and his criticism and his honesty and without the direction, because obviously I studied the whole games design aspect. So, you know, someone who's played video games for years, I knew sort of the idea of balance and creating things even and play testing and developing. And I started to learn things like 3D coding and all that sort of stuff. But when it went to doing a tabletop, it's completely different because not only obviously do you have to be able to write and write well, you have to then be able to format that correctly and have the information in a way that the reader's going to be able to read this. Like I have not been playing for a long time and I don't say that I'm the most amazing GM ever because since writing, I've slid into that role of GM as opposed to player, which is a shame because I'd love to be a player again, but it just is one of those things I can't dedicate to or get back into but there are some gms out there and dms that have done this for so long but if i said to them write me an adventure series and format it and get edited and get artwork a they wouldn't be able to do it because obviously the money that it takes to do something like that but also just the pure dedication and work and all those kind of other bits that you need to be able to do that yeah and speaking as someone who is frequently on the other side of that relationship from my day job because I am an editor for a publishing company. It's not a whole lot easier to give that uh, James or James I think he's being attacked. <laughs> yeah, that, that is my bulldog. Give me a second. I'm gonna grab her toy. She knows <laughs> exactly right. as soon as we start. <laughs> no, that's cool. Do you know I wish I wish I had a pet. It's been so long since I've had one. I always really enjoy having like a familiar. And I think I definitely want to do more stuff like that. Like I kind of did this thing in the adventure series for caravans which had this kind of it's never meant to be political and i never want to but it has quite a kind of heavy influence on you know the environment but it's very much in like a magical sense and there's no real wrong or right choice just a story that develops and has kind of a theme around it i'm like i'll go into that more later but you know i'd love to do a story more related onto the idea of like familiars and pets and do you know what? i'd love to do a module for that having pets and adding like creatures but i'm not sure if there's really something for that with fifth edition DD right now fifth edition familiars and pets particularly with the rangers that's one of the areas where fifth edition has fallen kind of flat in my opinion mm. if you can get a good Beastmaster ranger fix Yes. That will sell like hotcakes. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? I might have to look into it. It's funny because when you're doing stuff like this, you have to retake really into consideration what you can do and what you can't do. Obviously, I could create whatever I want as long as I'm not copying what they do. And I can use things within the book that 
is licensed in their open games license, which is the document that basically has a ton of stuff. It has a bunch of monsters in there and there's things that you can write and use. And obviously everything in the Cursed King, Cursed King's just an adventure series, a big six part new world, new module. You've got the Royal Unicorn, which is a tavern running module that uses everything in the game. And then it has its own little renamed things just to help separate that from the game. And then Caravans was essentially a much bigger, better, and more expanded idea upon Royal Unicorn. And then the GM's Toolkit was just literally a book of encounters, random encounters to help you like plan your sessions. That uses everything in that open games license. So, you know, it's just literally using your imagination then to sort of go a step forward with that. Absolutely, yeah. So you just brought up the topic of random encounters. One of the big selling points that you had in caravans were your table of 80 random encounters for your caravan or your camp. So what is your overall opinion of random encounter tables? So I think it's really good. You have to, you don't want to be saying, hey, here's a list and this is what you have to do. Like a list like that should sort of be a case of inspiration. So like if you look in the GM's toolkit for random encounters, we have the 100 misadventures. And that is just literally plot points for the game so that, you know, if you're like, you need a story point or you need to create some side quests on the fly, you have that little starting point to get you going and then you take the rest from there. So things like that, that's what they should be. And you don't really need a lot. Like we did AT and we were sort of thinking about how often events occur in the system. So like the 80 random events that you have there are things like, you know, the camp floods, bandits attack, a sickness hits the camp, like all those kind of things. We realized when we developed the turn order, so the way caravans works is you build your camp, you have your NPCs, and each week you have a turn order for things to happen. So this way it's easier for GMs and then players know what their kind of order of events are. So it helps to kind of keep that timeline sort of well aligned and you've sort of always got the same sort of routine going. So everyone's familiar with it. But an event will occur once a week and obviously GMs can choose to do more than that. But the idea is you should only have one a week because they can have big penalties to like the health of your NPCs, the morale of your camp, the amount of gold you have, damages to your upgrades, or even like a couple of really nice positive bonuses. And we literally realized that we have probably hundreds of hours of random events to happen. It'd be very, you'd have to be frequently going back to your camp to have a random event. So like the idea is you go to your camp, you do your week, which is like 10 days in Forgotten Realms, and then you go off an adventure. An adventure could be anywhere from like two to four sessions before you get back to your camp to then do another random event. So one event every four weeks, and we've got about 80. So (laughs) you can imagine we kind of went overkill, but there's nothing wrong with that. It just means we have to develop a lot of ideas. Future Ian and post-production here. This is the part where James's Wi-Fi card decided to stop working for a few minutes, so the question didn't make it into the recording. To avoid the awkward start without context, we asked Lewis to explain what the QPS system he uses for caravans is and how it works. Okay, so QPS is what caravans uses. It basically means quality, prestige, and supply. We still use the core aspects of like, you know, your strength, dex, intelligence, charisma, and wisdom, but we only use the dexterity for your quality. Your supply is based on intelligence. 
and charisma is your prestige. It's basically how well you're using the camp, how well is the camp made, and are you using it the best way possible? And that will determine your success in your NPC's ability to do tasks. Because as opposed to giving them constitution, armor class, health, all that, you only use the quality, prestige, and supply from the system we've created. It helps limit the amount of things they've got. Like, you shouldn't really be involving them in combat. And if you have a group of players that ever kind of are like, oh yeah, we want to bring them on an adventure, they are just considered very baseline, simple NPCs that will die. And if your NPCs die, it's going to have a major effect on your camp. So, you know, we kind of use QPS as a way of keeping things simple and easy to manage. I like that. So basically what we're going to be using Caravan for, if we pick up Caravan, it's going to kind of be like a downtime module. Is that correct? Exactly. Obviously, it's not just the pass the time, like investing time into your camp and money and really managing it well. It's going to end up giving you benefits in the long run. So you can, for instance, your camp can essentially generate supply. So imagine that you are literally playing a game like Stardew Valley or Red Dead Redemption. You're putting money and stuff into it so that you can get things out of it. Like the kind of stuff that is game affecting. So like, for instance, giving players health potions, all that kind of stuff is something that requires high rolls and it requires you to have put a lot of time and upgraded your camp quite a bit. But once you've done that, you've essentially got a self-sufficient and self-creating tool. And that was the idea with, for instance, the Royal Unicorn. The Royal Unicorn was just a way for the players to generate a constant inflow of money. So if they wanted to go on a personal quest, the GM didn't have to give them money for that. You could be like, well, you know, you go back to your tavern. Your tavern has generated this much over the course of so on and so forth. Okay, I can totally get behind that. This kind of reminds me, have you ever played the game Pillars of Eternity? No, I have not. That was made by Obsidian Studios. It came out, uh, I think, five or six years ago now. But they actually have something kind of along these lines where you go and you finally get like a castle build up. But as you put more money in, as you adventure more, you start bringing in things like merchants or craftsmen or things like that. So like these people could either like one, just give you money from stuff they sell. Or if you found reagents out from one of your various campaigns or missions, you could bring that back and they could craft things for you at a discount or however that works. And you mentioned Stardew Valley, so it does kind of have that or even that Fallout 4 base building kind of feel to things, which I think is, I see it very popular in a lot of video games now that's definitely lacking in a lot of tabletop campaigns. Yeah, well, definitely like the inspiration and stuff like Mass Effect and Dragon Age, which is a series I absolutely love and adore. And I always enjoyed coming back to camp, talking to my followers. And this gives that kind of standard Lord of the Rings fellowship following Dragon Age kind of feel that you are really the heroes and people are so inspired by you that they're willing to go live out in the woods under the pouring rain to help you and support you on your adventure. They're not just going to blindly follow you, though. Obviously, you need to do more than just be there. You need to be coming back to camp. You need to be keeping their morale up. Like, if morale goes down, like you get massive penalties to roles. So it's always worth doing that. And then there are roles in particular. So not roles as an R-O-L-L, but roles as an R-O-L-E. Like, you have a cook, you have a trapper, you have a herbalist, you have a leader, a trader, essentially a stable hand that looks after the horses. And those NPCs in the game, and this is why we kept it simple, is because they can get injured. Like, they can do a task, and there's some tasks that have a chance to get injured, and they could literally get anything from, like, a basic little, like, couple scratches, getting spooked, to getting colds, infections, you know, fractures, plagues. They can die, they can lose limbs, and then there are roles in particular. Like, we did a... There's a kind of thing where you could lose a limb on your NPCs, but then you could get your stable hand to create a prosthetic limb. 
to then help reduce any negative effects they might have from having lost that hand which was important like especially when writing this is some big whenever you're doing stuff is that you're ever like talking about stuff whether it's representing a different kind of group or society or so on and so forth you need to be able to consider that realistically is it going to have effects on gameplay but how are you going to not make that a massive hindrance so losing a limb for instance isn't a bad thing it's unfortunate and it sucks but for these people obviously they've lost something so it's kind of a situation of having to deal with that change so they'll have a negative to certain aspects but then they also have a essentially better reflex because of that trauma so they're more aware to getting hurt and then obviously you can completely ignore the negatives if one of your other roles supports them so there's a big ecosystem within the system itself where the roles are sort of there to help and support and benefit each other and it's fun because you're just you're constantly getting modifiers upon modifiers upon modifiers because you're upgrading proving and keeping everyone happy and that's how it should work no i love that that sounds like a ton of fun i do have to ask please please tell me that on one of these tables is there like a massive kitchen fire just on one of these tables because I could totally see that happening for various reasons. So this is the thing. I I need to crack on with the events because I haven't really got those done. Like there's 80 of those. So I left them to last <laughs> to do. But I'll actually get the table up and just read you a couple of them. Because some of them are brilliant. Like we've done some events already and we've done the tasks. Like the tasks are fantastic. So I will be just a second in finding that. But if you guys have any other questions, like throw those at me like while I'm just quickly okay. seeking this out. So you talked about, and you brought up this previously, that you talked about your Unicorn Tavern, which is the uh, tavern module that you released before this. And I've noticed on your Kickstarter, you do reference this as well. Is that a completely like separate standalone module, or can these two work together in conjunction? If they do, what's your difference and similarities? So Royal Unicorn was just the simple idea I definitely think Caravans is a massive, massive improvement upon the system. I think Royal Unicorn kind of pales a bit in comparison to it. Like, they're completely two different levels of the same thing. Like, I spent a lot more time working on Caravans and kind of creating the idea because I'd already had hours upon hours of work already done for me. It doesn't mean Royal Unicorn is bad. It's just not as involved as Caravans is. If you're ever going to go back and use Royal Unicorn and just use it as it is... It will work. It's just a fun, simple thing to kind of have players be able to run their own tavern and sort of just have a bit of fun with it. But if you wanted to, I would love to take the system of caravans and reintegrate that with the theme of the Royal Unicorn. So you're basically doing the same thing, like you have your morale, you have your employees. They can get injured doing tasks and stuff, because tasks isn't even something that's in the Royal Unicorn. In the Royal Unicorn, you just have events and then you have your weekly bills. So each week you generate income and then every third income roll you then have your bills which is one roll times three so you've got a hope that you've made enough and you've done well enough and you've improved your cap enough that you're making more than you're losing it's the one time you don't want to roll a 20 <laughs> no <laughs> like it's fun it's literally with that one it's simple it's basically for every plus modifier your tavern has that's an additional d6 that you roll for income so you have the QPSO quality, prestige, and supply, you know, maximum plus five on each. So you could potentially roll 15 D6s for income. And then obviously when you get to your outgoings, that would be three times 15. But then you would have upgrades and perks that your staff would have and the tavern would have that would reduce those amount of dice. I love that. That that sounds a lot of fun. I just want to see, like I said, the giant troll with, you know, the insurance racket, you know, hey, we never know when you might have an accident. <laughs> that yeah. kind of thing. 
No, so this is kind of like an Adobe, Adobe Pro type feel with these, you know, so it's kind of like, no, I'm really liking that you took this idea and kind of grew it up a, a bunch. So this is oh, really yeah, fun. definitely. The troll is the person that is doing in the insurance fraud because he goes in and he gets hurt. Yeah. And then, you know, files the claim. Files and, a slip and, and fall. And gets, and gets, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but because he's a troll and he has regeneration, he's fine in like a week. And, and he gets... <laughs> I got better. <laughs> and then he goes and does it to someone else. I'd imagine he's wearing like a fake cast and, you know, he's got a crutch and then the prosecution's just and rips it off and he's like, oh, oh, my neck. Oh. Full regeneration. I'm okay. I got better. You know, kind of like bring in some money python there. She turned me into a newt. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just got the NPC events and tasks up. So the way it works in a task. So for instance, you have, I think it's about six roles now. We added maybe a seventh. So, or we might have added a sixth. But the one we added was just the guard role, which it doesn't include any NPCs. You basically buy guards and any events that would include having guards there to defend can basically help give you another couple plus modifiers. So you buy those guards and they can either quit or get killed, et cetera, et cetera. And it's all kind of in a section of the module. But say, for example, you assign someone to the cook. So the cook has a bunch of roles for its task that you need to beat. And the cook is very prestige orientated. So anyone can chop carrots and vegetables put all together but it's really kind of knowing the chemistry of the cooking and really being able to put that together and give people an experience you know with the dish so that's why we kind of went with charisma because we're like it's the quality of that stuff but the task you could do so when you start off you do things like a daily meal prep and the effect of a daily meal prep is that for 1d4 days you increase morale so you'd roll a d4 to see how many days the cook will cook for during that week and then roll a d6 to see how much you're increasing the morale pie per day you need a 12 or higher to beat that and then we have something in particular called the levels of success so it's not just there's a dc and that's it and if you do a 20 it's really good it's how much higher than that dc can you do so if you do three or higher so 15 in this case the morale increase would be even further then when you get to six or higher it would be even more morale per day and then obviously if you get a 10 plus you get the most amount of morale increase you could possibly get but some of my favorite ones are stuff like Desperate Times, Missing Person, and the Special Stew. I, I'm going to ask you, what do you think a Desperate Times and a Missing Person is going to be? So, <laughs> well, that's going to be the Special Stew is what it's going <laughs> to yeah. be. I was going to say, you're in England, so I don't know how well you know about American history with the Donner Party. But that's the first thing that comes to mind for me. Okay. Yeah. So the Donner Party, you know, they were... Traveling out west, got caught in the mountains, and basically the party wound up eating each other. Okay, do you know what? Very good attempt. So basically you have your supply score, which... So when you come back in a week, basically if you're not there, like say over the course of two weeks, essentially the camp is self-sufficient. The GM doesn't have to worry. The only thing that may get affected is the morale if you stay away for too long. But your supply score is basically you get like a supply check each week, and every NPC you have is another D6 of supply that gets used up. So that's like food, medicine... You know, miscellaneous bits and pieces. Um, it sounds like a nice car. So <laughs> with Desperate Times, the camp score has to be 10 or below. And in this game, we've done so many playtests now that it's so easy to just get a huge amount of supply and then suddenly lose all of that supply. So supply score has to be 10 or less, and the morale has to be less than 50. One of the NPCs will sacrifice a limb to feed the camp. And this increases your morale by 5d6. Oh, wow. And then obviously, you know, you can increase the morale further. 
I'm also probably going to add like a small supply increase to that as well. But there's one that's sort of less voluntary, which is missing person. So one of your NPCs goes missing, murdered by the cook, but the supply score increases by 20. Failure results in a murder morale drop and the NPC leaves. So if you do certain things, people will respond to it in certain ways. And obviously it's down to the GM to kind of decide what that is. But like with the morale system... If you murder, exile, you get an accidental death, theft, conspiracy, blasphemy, necromancy, rebellion, or breaking the law are actions that will have huge reductions to your uh, your morale, which is super important. Oh, I totally want to do a blasphemy necromancy role. That just sounds so much freaking fun. <laughs> that, that is so you, James. Well, that is yeah. just so you. <laughs> And Special Stew is just a really good example of how the economy and ecosystem, I use ecosystem as a word of kind of like explaining how things affect other things. But to do a Special Stew, it requires the trapper to acquire the very best task that they have. And you also need to have the fine cooking gear upgrade. The trapper basically finds some like really special meat and manages to coax it into a stew that increases the morale like by a huge amount. And it's one of the best morale increasing things that can basically take your camp from miserable to happier than anyone's ever been. But it requires you to like upgrade and to get another successful role. And your NPCs can only do one task per week because obviously some of them could take several days to do. So you have to really kind of think about what you're going to do. This sounds a ton of fun. Now, again, because we do have a slight culture divide. Did you have the children's story, Dragon Stew or Dragon Dragon Soup growing up? I do not. I feel like I remember it. The king was wanting Dragon Stew, but nobody knew how to make it. So the cook went and found a dragon. And the dragon was like kind of brought in a bunch of stuff and taught people how to make this really good soup. And so, you know, you're reading the book. You're thinking that they're going to kill the dragon and throw him in the soup. But the dragon actually teaches him how to cook this big fancy meal or whatever, kind of like that. I kind of see that as one of these fancy Sioux type things which again sounds great fun because i mean it brings back some fun childhood memories you've got some time for some laughs some fun i like i said i'm really liking how these mechanics are sounding it sounds like a ton of fun oh the play tests have been hilarious i've never laughed more in my life in a session of dnd like there was one play test session i did with this is the thing you can do it with literally like we do some with just one people so we can see how they kind of think as a group collective and then we kind of do ones with group collectives so we can see kind of how the individual to the group spawns and if it works with smaller numbers it does really well but there was a playtest where one of the NPCs just was doing absolutely terrible every single week and the camp was just struggling. And one of the players just developed this pure hate <laughs> for this character. And that's where they were like, they wanted to murder the character because of their, their insolence. And so that's where we had to develop the massive morale drops of murder and accidental death. So it's like, okay, you want to murder him. You can murder him if you want. But, you know, do you want to be subtle about it? And he's like, well, I'm going to make it look like an accident. So then we had to kind of be like, okay, well, what would it be like if someone looked like they accidentally died? So there's literally this whole section on if you take an NPC out for you and they die while you're adventuring, it counts as an accidental death because no one can really know the true story. But it's just funny. Like, we tried to take into account everything, whereas the Royal Unicorn just kind of had the basics for the kind of mechanic of that. It didn't have any of the sort of flavor and the extra stuff that we put in there, which is why I did Caravans, because I wanted to do something really cool. And it just kind of, people loved it, and it blew off, and it did really good. And everyone loves it. I've not done a single playtest or shown people the playtest files. I'll have to send it to you guys as well, and like you, by all means, feel free to play it and give some feedback. But I'm not a single person's kind of been like, ah, it's okay. It's been such overwhelming and positive responses. Yeah, no, this is sounding like a ton of fun. I'm super excited. 
So when are you planning on actually trying to get everything rolled out? Do we have a timeline? So March 2022 is the deadline that we set. But overall, the studio has a really good track record for being on time or early, actually. In fact, and I'm not saying that to set any false hopes, but ideally, I would like to get it done as soon as possible. And that's not a case of rushing it. It's just being efficient. So far, everything's written. Caravans has been edited. All I've got left on my list is editing the three-part t- trilogy that we unlocked, finishing the remainder of the tables, which is just, I think actually someone finished the NPC list. Yes, that is done. So the only table we've got left to write is the events one, which is the biggest and longest one we've got to do. So that's obviously going to be a bit of time. We've got to lay out all the work and then send it out to the playtesters and get some feedback from them as well. And then once we've got the, the sort of feedback from them, then we're going to release it to the rest of the backers because we set up like a specific playtester pledge. And there wasn't like, you know, you pay extra to be a playtester. It was like, oh, you can do this pledge and you'll get some more stuff for the same price it would cost you to get those things anyway. But, you know, we're going to treat you as you're interested in playtesting. And we got quite a few nice responses from there. So there's a nice big group to kind of send those out to to get some feedback on those people and then just sort of go from there. So hopefully soon. But yeah, we've really managed to like get a lot done. So I'm hoping before March, way before March, but that is kind of the set deadline. And then once this project is done, people will be able to get this on our next Kickstarter. So we don't have anything set up in drive through. We don't have anything on the website. Everything is set up on our Kickstarters because not only do we want to continue making stuff, but we want to make sure that those projects are making as much as they can. And this is a really good way to encourage people to obviously try and get some of our other stuff and also allow us to, you know, make projects as good as they can be. So yeah, if anyone wants to get stuff, they'll be available on Kickstarter. Now, looking at your Kickstarter page, I noticed that it looks like as of last night, you hit your 10,000 pound goal, which sounds really, really heavy. And for the people listening at home, that's a little more than uh, 14,000 freedom bills, which is just (laughs) enough to get an ambulance to take you and drop you off at the hospital and then leave you to walk home. I was going to say, you might be able to buy an inhaler with that much. (laughs) Yeah. No, honestly, do you know, with caravans, we were only expecting to make about £5,000. I was pushing for five. That was the plan. And then it just kind of skyrocketed and just did crazy well. And I don't know what I did right. And hopefully, like I said, I think the big thing is now that we've got such an established amount of projects like the Curse King and caravans, the Royal Unicorn, the GM's Toolkit. Like there's a nice collection of stuff. And I think it's nice for people when they back because we like to... Some people said to me, like, for instance, with the lowest pledge that we have, it's quite low. It's less than like 20 quid. And some people said to me, like, for instance, oh, you know, you should make it a bit more. And I went, yeah, but I'd rather make it affordable to people. Because obviously, I know, especially with Kickstarters, you know, you back a thousand things you forget and your situation changes. And then obviously, you know, you either need that money back or you can't. And it really sucks to be in that situation. But I'd rather do it so like, you know, people can pledge as little or as much as they want and still get a lot of stuff. Like, especially when we finish... We've got all this stuff that's already made and people get that straight away. Like we send that out as soon as possible. And you can see with the updates that we had recently, we updated saying, you know, oh, we've sent out stuff. And then we got loads of comments at one point where people are like, oh, I didn't get anything. We're like, right, we're on it. Yeah, I noticed that. <laughs> that happens. Yeah, there's a few. <laughs> it always happens with emails, especially because obviously I do everything myself. So it's so easy. And there's a chance like I might have missed things or just missed the odd person. Or it might even be that we have the wrong email. But yeah, so far, like we've got it sorted and everyone else seems fine. And you know what? I just, it'd be nice to know that people are out there playing the stuff that we make and really having fun. And like I said, yeah, I will definitely send you guys the playtest file with everything that's up to date at the moment. So you guys can have just some fun with that. 
So with all of this, with your Kickstarter and your backing, I love how you're doing that. That's very organic. It's very grassroots. But with that 10,000 pound goal, you had said that you might be hinting at a new project. Do you have an inspiration for that? Do you have an idea of which direction you're going at this point? Or is it still kind of up in the air? Yeah, so definitely like that's something we're releasing. Like it's just a small demo to show off to people what the idea is like and kind of see how they like it, which is going to be cooking by the campfire, which is basically adding a brand new skill to fifth edition D D, where kind of like an alchemist you can create dishes and you know how final fantasy um i forget his name where he's like i've come up with a new recipe basically being able to be that guy and creating these really cool dishes and actually trying to find those ingredients and making them and they'll actually have an in-game benefit where it's kind of like taking potions but the mechanic of it is going to be that like you know you can cook the food and it will be food but you have to be I can't remember what the anime is called, but there's this anime where he makes food. I've never watched it, but I know of it. He makes food so good that people's clothes fly off. Oh, that's impressive. <laughs> I've seen clips and it, I never watched it, but it, it makes me laugh so much. <laughs> and I was like, that was a small inspiration for Cooking by the Campfire, where it was like, imagine making food so good that you essentially gave the equivalent of like a spell or like temporary hit points or all that kind of stuff. And it's just, you know, if you don't want to have anyone in your group that's kind of a magic user, you can do that. And you can use Cooking by the Campfire to be like, you know, I want to go gather ingredients and I want to be a herbalist and I want to cook food. And like, I love snacking during a game. So having food is just a bit of pizza, whatever, and Cooking by the Campfire. But saying that, since then, obviously certain things have come up where they've kind of inspired new ideas. And one of them being I haven't spoken to anyone else about this at the moment. It's literally in the sort of the beginning stages of development. There's an idea for something similar to that of Squid Games, which I know everyone is probably going to be doing in the next six months or so. <laughs> but it's kind of how can you take that idea and make it different? And I came up with, if you guys are interested in hearing, I can. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'd love to hear it. So basically the idea is that I would create a deity or a god of grief and despair. So it wouldn't be physical money that people would want, but emotional debt and despair that they would build up. And this god essentially feeds on that kind of thing. So he lures people into his games, his little games for them to sort of place their soul on the line. And if they survive his games, they will get you know, sort of eternal happiness. They'll get the thing that they want that's going to sort of help them alleviate that debt, that despair, that stress. Whether that's like, you know, if they're struggling with money and their family's poor, then like, you know, they're going to want money. Or if it's like, you know, they want the love of their life. It's like basically he's going to grant their wish. But chances are they're going to die. And this would be sort of a module that you could do where the party gets invited to the game and they basically have to lead these souls through this series of rooms that will have different challenges in each room, different kinds of traps to add to your game. So you could take the traps from this game, for instance. Like one of the ideas for the game is you go into a room and the room has a grid and you have to unlock the sequence. So you have to figure out the pattern to be able to get to the other side. If you step on the wrong one, you activate the trap and there'll be a series of different traps within the book. So GMs can not only mix and match the modules of rooms that they play on, but they can also change the traps and obviously create patterns. So there'll be like a bunch of template patterns for people to use. But then GMs obviously can come up with their own stuff and utilize these traps in other aspects. And basically the souls will be under your command. They're kind of mindless to a degree. But if these souls die in the game, their physical bodies become completely comatose. They're dead. They're gone. Their minds are obliterated. Their souls have been consumed by the maze and by the god himself. And there's going to be different rooms and such. So there'll be like, you know, for instance, the grid room. There'll be creature encounter rooms. There'll be death rooms. So like, for instance... You have to say it's a five by five grid of rooms you have to get through and you have to get through to the exit. There will be some rooms that are just 
instant murder machines. And you have to think, right, I'm going to send 10 souls into this room. And it might be that it's pressured to only kill 15 or more. Or it might be that it's a completely normal room. So you have to kind of get through the maze with as many souls as possible. And the more souls you get through, the bigger the reward the players get. But obviously the whole thing's designed against them so that they're going to be losing souls and they have to sacrifice these souls to be able to do that. And that's kind of the idea based on the sort of whole aspect of Squid Games and those games. And I think it would be so fun to make. But Cooking by the Campfire is definitely on the table and we definitely will hopefully be doing all of these. Yeah, that sounds a lot of fun. That sounds like a great Feywild or um, Shadowfell campaign would be a yeah. great setting for either one of those. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, whatever people want to put it into, we just give them the tools to do what they want and they have the freedom to kind of go wherever they want with them. I can see that being something that you would run into with the Afrit and the Plane of Fire. Oh, yeah, definitely there too. That would be, oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. All right. <laughs> I think I'm done with questions. James, do you have anything else? The only other question I had is with this, I know we've talked a lot about 5th edition. Is this particularly for 5th edition or do you think you could possibly port this to something like Pathfinder or something, another D20 type system? So... Especially like the format where something like GM's Toolkit is designed for D&D, but the sort of way it's designed is a really good template for GMs to be able to organize and create encounters that they can use for their own game. So if people want to take the idea and use it for their own personal stuff, they could do. But something like Caravans is sort of system agnostic. And that's why we created and used the QPS system. So you would only really need to, you know, pick three different skills to put in there. And you then would only really need to rework the dice based on what your system and your game would require. So a little bit of legwork, but yeah, you definitely, you definitely could. Excellent. That's great to hear. (laughs) (laughs) This is why I didn't want to make it dependent on the system. I wanted it to kind of be like free of the chains a little bit because I'm personally not going to sit there and create a caravans camp running module for fifth edition Pathfinder Warhammer 40k. If people want to do that and they want to use it, and they like the idea, they can go with that. Like we had someone review the GM's toolkit and they were like, the way they've done this is a really good format for you to develop encounters. So like GM's toolkit has encounters going all the way. If you get the full limited edition from levels one to 12, and that should be enough for you to run like a decent amount of encounters at that level. All right. Well, I think we've reached the end of the interview portion. One of the things that we like to do with our guests is go through our monster mash random table and create a monster on the fly. Nice. I like it. So if you are willing and you've got some dice. Yeah, definitely. Let me get my little dice box as well. All right. I've got too much dice. This is the problem. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, who doesn't have too many dice? I have parsed mine way back. My wife actually got me two Christmases ago now, a really nice dice set. So that is my main dice. But I used to be there used to be some game shops around here where you could purchase the one pound bag of random dice and that was just always <laughs> on. <laughs> well, this is my miscellaneous big bag dice. Are you ready? Uh, you might yep. hear this. Oh, nice. <laughs> I could pour this out, but I... Um, a, a meaty thwack. A meaty thwack. <laughs> but I'm actually going to use some really nice dice that I picked up from Dice Goblin. Not to plug them, but they're a UK-based dice company. And they're just brilliant. Like, I love the sets, and they're, like, pretty decently priced and stuff. I actually got my girlfriend some really nice ones from there. I'm going to use some new ones I got that I think are called Party Glow or something. They've got confetti on them. Oh, sounds fun. And, they're yeah, yeah, they're fun and they're funky. I've got blood-covered dice. I've got some wormwood dice, all sorts. Right, 
I'm ready. I've got my All dice. All right. All right. So first roll, we're going to need a D4 for its mode of locomotion. Okay. Right. Now we're going to find out. I've never rolled these dice before. Now we're going to find out if they love me or hate me. <laughs> That's a four on the dice. All right. So it swims. Oh. Okay. All right. Next is going to be a D6 roll for what does it eat? Mm, I'm curious. That's a four. A four? It eats fruits slash vegetables. That's interesting. So it swims and it eats fruits or vegetables. Oh, I'm seeing something along the lines of like a sea cow or a whale. A sea cow. <laughs> it's like it's, it's just a hippopotamus. It's yeah. a seal. It's a it's a veg like it's a vegan seal at this point. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> All right. Next is going to be a D8 roll for size. Oh come on, be humongous. Six. Six. It's going to be huge. Hey. <laughs> Give me a second. Hold on, real quick. Is is that a vegan seal that I hear? That is a boxer, but hold on. Hey, you're not helping. All right. So I'm going to continue on while we wait. I actually just reworked this a little bit. So the next is going to be another D8 roll for its social organization. Interesting. I love it. That's another four. Wow, this really favors fours. Okay, so... As a four, this is a family social construct, so it's got a matriarch, patriarch, plus offspring. I love it. That's great. <laughs> All right, I think I'm back again. It's just, it's a crazy day. Day of madness. <laughs> so we just had uh, a D8 roll for social organization, had a okay. four for, it's a family unit, so matriarch plus patriarch plus okay. offspring. Okay, so yeah, I'm still seeing like a pot of orca. Yeah. I'm still going with vegan seal. <laughs> okay, you know, that totally works. <laughs> All right, next up, this is going to help a D10 roll for the number of limbs. Oh, good lord. Okay, that is free. <laughs> three? Okay, it's, so it's got a three limbs. Oh. No, I'm still liking this. You got the fin, you got the flippers. Yeah, no, we're yeah, we're rolling it's an OTM. Up yeah, <laughs> with, with its with its three legs. All right, next up is a D12 roll for method of defense. Interesting, right? This is going to really mix things up. Electric heel. nine, <laughs> nine. It has a spear limb. Ooh, it's yeah, I'm loving it. I'm loving it so far. Okay, so we're kind of like like a scorpion tail. Or swordfish, yeah, or swordfish, or, or like swordfish. a marlin, yeah, yeah. Like okay. so it's vegan. So I'd imagine it eats like maybe algae. It could, yeah. yeah, algae, coral. So it's quite a pain in the ass, to be honest. This creature is a menace to society. Its family roams from place to place, eating up all the coral and algae. In fact, it's actually a massive issue for sort of sea life. And these guys are quite jerkish, but they'll happily defend themselves. And they will do some serious damage with their little appendage. And their... I like it. So we got like this invasive species type thing going. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. And it's big. It eats a lot. So it doesn't, you know, it's not trying to be douchey. It's not trying to be mean. It's not trying to do damage. It just eats such a large amount. And there's so many of them that it ends up doing damage. No, oh, okay. I can feel that. I can see it being in an environment like a mangrove swamp. And it's, mm. and it's using this spear limb to, you know, unearth the roots and topple the mangrove trees oh. into the water so it can yeah. eat the mangrove trees. I'd imagine it also has built a habit of capsizing ships because 
either it's so big that it could eat the wood and you know it quite enjoys gnawing on it the same way that a panda eats bamboo but it, it tends to like eating the uh fruit and veg on some ships that may may pass by so sometimes it's a bit of a gamble and they end up with you know tummy aches but oh maybe it's learned that you know if it can sink a ship and you've got like the stock barrels and it's learned yeah. to kind of like break into those i would almost see this as sort of a it accidentally disrupts shipping Probably, and, yeah. And the sailors have started feeding them. Like, whenever they go through and they know that they're going through an area where these things are, they will just chuck a couple of barrels of fruit off the side of the boat yeah, as a distraction. Like and so now they have learned to associate ships with food. So, yeah. <laughs> like, in the same sense of, you know, you don't feed the bears when you go to the park. Yeah. For this yeah. reason. I love it. I love it. Like I said, they're not jerks. They just... It's an unfortunate combination, and God has forsaken them, or their deity. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to make you big, I'm going to make you hungry, and I'm going to really let you mess things up. All right. So now you're describing me, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did come in here and start chatting about chicken, so maybe. All right. Next up is a D20 roll for quirks. Oh, this is it. This is really where we're going to learn the final piece of the puzzle to solve the murder mystery. That is a 15. 15. Roll three more times on the D12 chart. So the uh, oh the method of defense chart. Oh, okay. So it gets more things? Yeah. It gets more things. Oh, I love it. I love this so much. This is so useful for like making actual like creatures and stuff. I just did a couple for the adventure series and it was all based on like these plant life type things. So we created the Baleful Bell, which is basically like a big kind of bell piranha plight type thing that doesn't need to eat meat to live. It uses photosynthesis. It just enjoys the suffering of its victims. Um, <laughs> very evil. Then you got the Vile Vines, which is kind of like a Demogorgon. We talked about strange things. A Demogorgon inspired vine creature. And then there's a better version of it, which I can't remember the name for it. I think we called it the Vengeful Vine, which has basically grown around a corpse and uses armor from the corpse to defend itself, to further improve its ability. And then you've got the Mushroom Brute, which is a giant fungal mushroom brute inspired by The Last of Us. And it can generate these small little kind of half-life headcrab type things. And then the Baleful Bell can also do a similar thing and create like these Venus flytrap mouth kind of headcrab type things. And then we have the Vine Dragon as well, which is a dragon made of vines. And yeah, that was everything in that adventure series. So they were really fun to make. But anyway, back to serious business. I rolled a two. A two? has a bite. Ooh. So okay. yeah, it bites it, and that, stabs. That makes sense with what we've got so far. Right. Yep. Um, what else do we have? we got two more. Okay. Seven. No, Seven. one. 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 One? Yeah, Pincers one. slash claws. Oh, God. These guys sound horrible. <laughs> These things are great at just like peeling back planks of ships or barrels. That's kind of, you know, they've got that spear appendage and they kind of yeah. just rip things open. I'd imagine they, they see it as a big pinata. They kind of dive in, puncture the ship, ship begins to sink. They then sort of group together, hold the ship and start ripping away at the innards of the ship. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And again, they didn't mean to. They just think that that's where the food is now. Yeah, right. They, so they ram the ship with this spear appendage mm. on the front of their face yeah. to give them a spot to get a handhold with their claws. Yeah. It's like yeah. an anchor. Like this is the thing. Like they're so big, I don't think they could be in like mangrove swamps. They'd have to be in oceans. 
Yeah, and this would have to what, be a shipping yeah. line. Pencil. What kind of yeah. fruit and veg would you find? Like, they're going to eat algae, coral, and just fruit off ships. And if they're doing coral, the claws make sense because that helps them break apart the coral to get yeah. to the right. to get to the bits and on the inside. Or likewise, you've got the kelp forests, you know, yes. so you yeah. have that really thick seaweed. Okay, yeah. Right. One more. Right. One more. Eleven. Eleven. It has spines. Oh, God. They. I'm not sure how I feel about that. It's such a mismatch of things. I'm thinking, like, almost to a degree, giant lobster-like shell-like creatures with huge, slim swordfish-like noses. Their pincers and their big sort of, like, claw, like jaws. Like, you know how the jaws on a a crustacean kind of sort of opens down and sort of moves to the side. Yeah. I'd imagine yeah. they have something like that. And it's kind of like the same way they have sort of the, what are they called? Well, you know, when the ship gets those little shells on the bottom, the barnacles, like barnacles, they like kind of their skin is almost to a degree like that, like a, yeah. a giant whale skin, but covered in mostly those. Yeah, I could see that. Or again, it could be a way to actually attach to the ship because if they're sure. slower, this way they could actually carry with it while they're ripping into it type thing. Might be how they rub off the coral. They just yeah. kind of rub their bodies against it and itch a yeah. scratch and then get something to eat. Okay. And I could actually see having colonies of barnacles on them because, you know, as yeah. big as they are, they've got to be messy eaters. Oh, absolutely. Well, they might even be self-efficient. They might just eat off each other, thus the family dynamic. Okay. It might be that they get small shores of fish growing on them. They might not be the menaces we make them out to be. We might just be making them into bullies because we want conflict. They might be self-sufficient ecosystems of their own. They're so big that you can literally find corals on them. And they have these small fishes on them and they tend to then rub on each other and scratch away and you know peel those corals and you know they might have this quite you know rich oily skin that helps to grow them you know they become self-sufficient and they cause no harm in fact they create homes for fishing so it'd be like the rhinoceros and the tick bird yeah there you go okay. let's go with that the sharks and remoras yeah yeah I could see the that. only thing the thing i the absolutely love is thinking about an actual encounter in D with this because i did one in particular in fact when you play the cursed king not give away too much, but there's an encounter with a giant sea creature, specifically a Plephiosaurus, which I went to the Natural History Museum in London and learned that that one was not as big as I had made it out to be. And there were actually bigger versions of that creature, which is basically like, I don't know if you've ever seen what they look like. They're terrifying. And for me personally, I have a massive fear of deep water and sharks, even though I love shark films. And that one was fun because our halfling got swallowed whole. <laughs> and then the party managed to kill them. Like they had a ship and they were fighting on the ship and everything. And then they managed to get to shore. And he managed to climb out of the head through the eye. So <laughs> it was just brilliant. And it was so much fun because, you know, just how do you fight a huge creature in the water? It's very difficult. That's that's the answer. I like it. So with these, I'm kind of seeing like maybe some ships that pass toss in barrels as food. Maybe if you see these things for a lot of people... It's a good omen. Yeah, maybe. Like I said, they're not the bullies we make them out today. So. Right. And the others, like, if they think, hey, this is like a whaling type thing and we can harvest this thing, then maybe you piss them off and they can just wreck some stuff in their own defense. I reckon, like, you know the way that whales are... Is it great whales? What are they called? I forget. The sperm whale? Um, yeah, like that, sperm whales, and the way dolphins are, where they can be brutal. They are monsters. Dolphins are uh, horrendous creatures. But by and large, they'll leave you alone if you leave... Yeah, no, I like it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. All right. So now it's time to make it weird. <laughs> so I need a D100 roll, please. Okay. God, do you know what? I haven't done D100 roll in so long. You'll have to run me through it quick. I'm pretty sure it's this dice. 
and this dice. I know you can't see it, but I believe that's correct. <laughs> yes. And do you know what? I don't really ever do D100. I tend to just do times because I'm a lazy GM like that. 73. 73. Let's scroll down here and see what we got. 73. It clicks in Morse code using pro signs. Using what? <laughs> what? Uh, it's dots and dashes, basically. Oh. <laughs> He uses Morse code. I like it. So there's the old film, The Incredible Mr. Limpet with Don Knotts. I don't know if you've ever seen that or not, but where he turns into a fish. It's a guy, he turns into a fish, and so he helps the uh, Allied naval forces during uh, World War II by using sonar to uh, mark the uh, German submarines. Oh my god. (laughs) But since we're having this whale-type creature, you know, with its whale song being something like, Morse code or, or dolphins even with their clicking would make a fair bit of sense. I reckon these guys are so smart. I reckon they're a lot more intelligent than, yeah. than we think they are. They write on the ships. They actually write Morse code. Like they engrave with their spines and their pincers and their claws, like markings and Morse code, like bumps on the ships. So they know which ships passing through. So they don't use scent. They actually use a form of Morse code, whether it be they actually put, they mark out, they scratch out the little shells on the ship to create like that kind of Morse code pattern and they know which ships. So then they'll hover around the ships that give them the food. I like it. What if these are like a really early proto dragon? That's interesting. Yeah. I can see like, like a proto dragon turtle. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I like where this is going, but yeah. And now that we've got this, they're using language. So that implies a much higher level of intelligence than I was originally picturing. Yeah, I was thinking dumb, young, and fun was kind of my go-to. <laughs> yeah. Now, to a degree, I'm thinking like Mass Effect Leviathans. You yeah. Know? Yeah, I like, can They're very that, yeah. wise, very wise creatures, and they're kind of like, again, like you said, if they get attacked, they are destructive. But if you leave them alone, they are very kind and understanding creatures, and they will probably guide lost ships back to shores. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That could be why they're considered a good omen at times. Yeah. And it would also imply a very long life cycle Mm. so that makes sense with their size you know why they stay in family units because they may live four or five hundred years and so they might only have one child every 30 40 years and so this we now have the conversation of which is the dominating of the family the apex you know the silverback gorilla of the group because we've got that now they fight they will challenge one another and sort of take the hierarchy because that kind of hierarchy in the animal kingdom doesn't just mean that they're, you know, mum, dad. It's kind of like roles to a degree. Like, have you ever seen how gorillas will take young and raise them as their own because they yeah. want to? Okay. So it's more of a chosen family than an actual genetic family sort of deal. Yeah. I think that'd be fun because, yeah, again, no. like you said, they live so often, so they probably don't need to. So there's probably so many of them have existed for so long. Okay. And so I'm going to do one more D100 roll. James, do you want to do this? You want me to do this? I'll go ahead. If you don't mind, I just have an online dice roll, but I can go ahead and do it. That's fine. Yeah. I've got a 34. 34. (laughs) Okay. Where's a tiny business suit and carries a briefcase? (laughs) Briefcase contains 1D6 more of the creature, one size category smaller. <laughs> well then. <laughs> okay, so we just threw all sense of propriety out the window. We got we adventured into the absurd. We were doing so well. We were doing so well. We just took a full running leap into Hitchhiker's Guide. Yeah. <laughs> Hello there. Do you happen uh, to have any I mean I mean 
but I mean, it's just like imagine sailors on the ship, just sort of looking, going, "Captain, there be a joint businessman here." No, no, I... no. Wait, I like it. I can salvage it. I can salvage it. <laughs> you can salvage it. I can salvage it. <laughs> Who's to say business clothes has to be human? These things are very obviously intelligent. They're long lived. Maybe they're quote, quote, business attire is within some sort of like algae or coral or kelp. So they are obviously a sentient race because they have language, they talk, they communicate. They just so like they have the way... some sort of garb. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Okay. 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 Yeah, cool. We can stick with everything we've got except they have. Yeah, but how do you explain top hats? I feel like the suit and bow tie, <laughs> yes, I completely get. But top hats are very like... It's a squid. It, it didn't. It didn't say anything about a top hat. It <laughs> just it says not? a tiny, a oh. tiny business suit and carrying oh, the a briefcase. Suit. I guess that yeah, they just have that kind of algae pattern over them. So yeah. I'm picturing this. <laughs> this is an extra planar creature. This is not native to the plane of existence that it's from, and its briefcase. What is in its briefcase? It said that there was one d six more of the creature, one size category smaller. <laughs> That's where it keeps its kids. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a portal to its home plane, and it's yeah. gotten too big to go back home. Okay. But, you know, whenever they find a place that is suitable to establish a family, they open up the briefcase and their kids swim out. And... <laughs> I like it. Or maybe that's how they colonize a new area. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, no, no, I like it. I like it. We, it was a bit of a stretch, but I think we salvaged this one. <laughs> we, definitely, right. we definitely did. Excellent. Okay, so just a quick recap. It swims, it eats fruits and vegetables, it is huge-sized, it has a family social structure, it has three limbs. One of them is a spear limb, but it also has a bite, pincers or claws, and spines. It uses Morse code to communicate, and it has a tiny business suit and carries a briefcase that <laughs> carries 1d6 more of its offspring. <laughs> it's too perfect. It what is. are we naming this thing? Yeah, exactly. What are we going to call it? Uh, Gina Lopohos. <laughs> All right. I've got nothing better. <laughs> I just imagine Gene is the guy who discovered them, and he decided to name them after himself. That works. <laughs> All right. Well, that was a ton of fun. That, that was, was a lot of fun. That. It's always my favorite part of the show. Yeah, definitely. That was honestly, that was really great. I might even use that kind of format to kind of help me with creating stuff because it just, it's fun. It, it can definitely fun. get weird. It can definitely get weird, but it's a good way to start. <laughs> yeah. So real quick, before we get into the self plugs, another thing that we like to do when we have a guest on is to have our guest give someone else a shout out, someone else in the community, be they another podcaster, an RPG creator, an artist, a musician, someone who inspires them, who they think deserves some extra credit. Who would you like to shout out today? So let me get his Twitter handle out because he's absolutely phenomenal. He's been a massive support since I started kind of doing my own company and he's just been so great to work with. Dungeon Mr. Ty, aka Timor, who's actually got some interesting stuff in the works at the moment of his own making and I'm kind of really excited to see what he brings out. I know he's going to be working on a new game soon. So he's going like, he's taking a whole big step ahead of me. Like I started off with just writing adventures and modules. He's going for his own game. I don't know too much. He's not told me too much information, but like definitely go check him out. I'm just trying to find Dungeon Mr. Tide tends to be his handle for most things. I just would like to actually give you his 
Twitter. Here we go. So at Dungeon Mr. Ty is his handle on Twitter. So like go check him out, follow him. And Adventure Slang is going to be a really cool production company. I'm looking forward to seeing what they do. All right. And so now is the time for you to plug you because that's what we came on for and we want to end <laughs> with a bang. So tell us your socials, where we can find you, where your projects are, the whole nine yards. Awesome. So like you can go and follow me on Twitter at we can follow the company uh, Dead Chance Studios, uh, DCSRPG, nice and simple for you. You can go to our website, www.deadchannelstudios.com. And most importantly, go onto the website, go follow us on Kickstarter, and you know, you'll know you be updated when projects go live. You can follow our mailing list. Um, but most importantly, maybe Kickstarter is the best place to go, but definitely our website. Go to our website, all the links are there that you'll need. And yeah, we'll definitely be working on some awesome stuff in the future, so go and check that out. All right, Lewis, thank you so very much for joining us today on Undercommentate. No, thank you guys for having me. This was really, really fun. Yeah, no, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. (laughs) And thank everyone for listening today. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas for future episodes, please send us an email, undercommentaste at gmail.com, or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. I'm still doing our Shakespeare and Insult page-a-day calendar-inspired roleplay prompts six days a week. They get put up on the Twitter account and then cross-posted to our Instagram and Facebook accounts at undercommentaste. We are on Patreon, patreon.com slash undercommentaste. All of our write-ups go up on our Patreon account. We recently released the Ratatosk, which we talked about in our Beastlands episodes, as both a monster that you can use at the table and as a player race. That is a patron exclusive, so if you're interested in that, go check us out and become a patron of the show. We're also on Discord. The link for our Discord is in the show notes. Please come over and join us and chat with us. I'll definitely be joining myself, so uh, I'll be looking forward to sort of chatting and meeting some people there. Excellent. Awesome. You can find our podcast wherever you find your podcast. As always, give us a rate and a review. This helps increase our visibility and lets us know what you want to hear more of. Thanks once more for listening today, and we will see you next week whenever we dive into Easgard as we continue our planar travels. Happy gaming. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. If you enjoyed what you heard, please pass it along to your friends. If you have comments, suggestions, or ideas, you can email them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts, and we would greatly appreciate any likes, ratings, and comments you could provide. Find us on social media. We're at undercommontaste on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and on Twitter at the handle at UCTHomebrew. If you would like to help support the show financially, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash undercommontaste. Our theme is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find her online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmaryccrowell. Thanks again for listening and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.